I have uh, mentioned that much like the rhythm of the, the other Gospels, um, the first half or so of the Gospels are often heavy on overview of the first three, three and a half years of Jesus' ministry on earth. He was probably only around 30 years old to about 33. And then the last third to a half is often focused on the last week or so of the Lord's ministry on earth. And that's what we have in the Gospel of Mark. So there's a really popular song, a worship song several years ago. I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit here. And the chorus simply said, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. And then it says, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it, because it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. So I think a couple of people sang that song, Michael Lewis Smith. I'm, uh, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you. What is with the apology in that song? Like how many people have sung that song? Yeah, so most people here. Why do we, what's with the apology? I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I made it. Okay. How so? So how, okay, I'm not going to disagree with that. Okay. So Mel said, if you didn't hear that, that some of our worship or a lot of our worship can be flipped around where it's about us instead of the one we're worshiping. I agree with that. I mean, I think worship, the experience of worship, I think, is both uh, vertical and horizontal. We do it together, but the worship should be going up to the Lord. Anything else? Why, why would we apologize? What, what, what might we make worship that it would be wrong? Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it might be about preferences. Anything else? Yep. Right. Okay. Okay. So in the worship, again, worship literally means to bow down. Typically, the word used in scripture, um, not exclusively, but the word would be to bow down in surrender and adoration. So we don't do that just through music. Music is a corporate way that we do that together, lifting our voices to the Lord, which is very appropriate. But the, the scripture talks about our life being an act of worship. So here you're talking about devotion of worship in your time in the Lord, with the Lord in his word. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll read the stuff I like. Maybe I'll skip over the things that are hard. Interesting. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, so the common theme is that we can make our worship, instead of it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus, it's all about me, it's all about me, me. <laughs> Interesting. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. As they approached, now remember that Jesus is going along the road and he's heading toward Jerusalem. 
as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt. Now, we know in the other Gospels that this is a donkey's colt, a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied in a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, when, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. We'll stop there. So there's two villages mentioned here as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. Uh, Bethpage, they're, they're both very near Jerusalem. Bethpage was very close, only about a mile or so from Jerusalem. Bethany, about two miles. Bethany is the home, if you remember, of Jesus has very close friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We know, according to John 11, that, that not too long ago, Lazarus was what? Raised from the dead, right? He was dead and dead no longer. After four days, hey, don't open that tomb. It's going to stink. Decay has set in, and the Lord raises him from the dead. Uh, that's very likely. Uh, the Gospels tell us that Jesus goes back to Bethany in, in the evenings during this week, except the very latter part of the week, uh, during the week of his passion. Very likely he stayed at the home of Mary and Martha and the risen Lazarus. Um, Bethany, part of Bethany is on the, 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 um, the ridge of the Mount of Olives. I've never been there. Some of you here have. You can, you can see the city uh, from the Mount of Olives. So Jesus sends two unnamed disciples on an errand. And this errand clearly left an impression. It, there was probably all kinds of things like this that happened in the three and a half years of ministry. But this one clearly was important. Uh, all the synoptic gospels, the, the ones that we can kind of jive together, John stands alone is just a very different rhythm in the gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us of this errand. And, and we can notice right off the bat that Jesus is a sender. Um, you know, good leadership, they say, learns how to delegate. Well, Jesus is, is very often sending his men out before him, sending them out on errands that he could have done himself. Um, and this really sets the stage for the era, the era, the age, the time to come, which we're living in, because, because Jesus sends his community of faith, his church, to do his work, to be ambassadors of the gospel, to be representatives for his name's sake on the earth. This is what God does. He takes people, he rescues people. Jesus' name means God is salvation. And then he commissions us to a work. It's a like work. We all do it together, but also we do it as it manifests itself uniquely through your personality, through your gifts, through your calling. But God is a sender. He sends us to love people in Jesus' name. He sends us to help people in Jesus' name. He sends us to serve people in Jesus' name. He sends us to minister the message of the good news of the gospel in Jesus' name. They're not set out alone. 
Uh, they're sent in, in pairs. We've seen Jesus do this before. Uh, the work of Jesus, uh, Jesus' community is not done by a bunch of isolated lone rangers. Th- this idea of just kind of me and God, it's just kind of me and God, and I'm a part of a church community at my leisure, at my pleasure, it's not biblical. <laughs> Uh, Jesus, Jesus always is working with a people. God is always with a pe- calling a people, a collective people. The, the work of the Lord through that people happens in the context of fellowship. It happens in the t- context of mutual encouragement and accountability. In the context of community. So he sends them on an errand. He's a delegator. He's a sender. He sends them not alone, but as a pair. Um, but this simple mission was a mission of faith. They, they were going into the city. They had to, this village uh, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, they had to trust that things would be just as Jesus said they would be. So in hindsight, it says things were just as, you'll, you'll see that things were just as Jesus said. But they didn't. They had to trust that going forward, right? They had to trust that I will go, I will find this donkey's colt, and, and, you know, all the details will work out as the Lord said. They had to trust that they can move according to Jesus' word and Jesus' authority. Um, Other people's animals are very valuable all throughout the world. That's true in our culture. In other cultures, that's even magnified. They're even more valuable depending on how much that community might have, how agricultural that community might be. When I spent time in Haiti, it was really interesting. I've been there several times. Have anyone else here been to Haiti? Or if you've been in some sort of third world setting, there's, like, in Haiti, there's pigs wandering everywhere. Like everywhere. They're in the streets, they're in the garbage, they're mucking around. And, you know, and there's goats everywhere. And goats, some, some goats are to random mar- uh, rocks and they're, ah, ah, you know, just, it's just weird, you know. Like you're just walking down the streets and there's a pig and you're walking down the street and there's a goat. And I remember saying to, my, to, to Wilgins, uh, some of you met Wilgins, he was here a couple years ago. I said, Wilgins, what, how does, who do they belong to? How does anybody know whose pig is whose and whose goat is whose? He goes, no, everybody knows whose pig is whose. Everybody knows whose goat is whose in the community. And if you dare take someone else's animal, that would be a serious crime, a serious crime. So it's, it's very likely the same sort of uh, thing here. It would be a serious crime just to go and take an animal. But Jesus knows all the details ahead of time. He knows that there's going to be this cult. He knows that it's going to be tied up. He knows that when his men just go, can you imagine? They just go and start untying it. And when they do, they're challenged. And he knows that all they need to say is, the Lord is in need of it. It was a a message of authority. The The one who is in authority needs it. That that's all they need to say and they would commandeer it. The good news in this is that we too can trust. We too can trust that Jesus never sends us to do his work apart from his perfect foreknowledge and authority. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Jesus continues to delegate... His work to us. 
Go, Joe, go and do. Alan, go and do. Susie, Katie, Myron, go and do. I'm delegating, I'm sending you into the circle of influence that you have in your workplace, in your family, in your schools, wherever you're at, I'm sent, and then go and do in my name. And it means when we're tempted to scratch our heads in the middle of it, because success often looks different than how we would deem it and the timing we would deem it, and we say, well, doesn't success mean we won't have Difficulty will know, do you read the Bible? You know, it's... And we scratch our heads and we say, God, do you, did you really know what you're doing when you did this to me? Did you really know what you're doing when you sent me here? We can know that he surely knew what he was doing when he sent us to work in that family, in that church community, in that broader community, in that workplace, in that school, in those relationships that the Lord is aligning you with, in, can I say it, to relocate a church and build a building that seems like sometimes we can't build because where's the money and where... Does God know what he's doing? Does God send us with his perfect foreknowledge and his perfect authority to accomplish the task? Now, may it happen the way we think it should happen. May it happen in the timing. May, may there be... God knows best. But we know that whenever he sends us, we can move in faith with confidence that when he sends us, he's sending us in his word and his authority to those places. Amen? Easy to say, right? Easy to say. But it should be a salve to our souls. Okay. I'm in the middle of the mess. This is hard. I don't always get it. I've sent you with perfect foreknowledge, with my word, perfect authority. Um, we also notice the example. I, I, I just always feel like I can point this out. The example of those who released the cult. Now, Luke, the Gospel of Luke tells us that these were actually the owners that said, hey, what are you doing? the owners of the cult, and, and once they simply say, the Lord needs it, Jesus, Jesus needs it, Jesus' name has already become very popular around this region, they're like, oh, okay. I say, am I that responsive to the Lord when the Lord says, I need it. I need your time, I need your treasure, I need your talents, I need it. Imagine if the Lord came and said, I was just thinking this, imagine if, the, not that he doesn't know this, but he comes and says, um, hey Randy, I need, I need the numbers to your savings account, please, because I'm, I'm going to be in need of some of that. That's kind of personal, God, you know, I mean, I know that, my wife knows that, and, uh, you know, I, I need... I need to use your home on that night that you just want to say, well, my home is my castle. And no, but there's some people that I'd like, I'd like you to invite in and, and, and bring some encouragement to or minister to. I need your body when you just think, well, my body is mine. I need your mind. I need your time. I need your resources. And, and I just love that these guys, are, the Lord needs it. Oh, okay. He's not going to abuse it. This donkey, even, he's like, I'll bring it back. You're not going to regret it. Jesus now moves uh, from his usual mode of transportation. He usually, almost uh, always, is said to move by foot. And he rides this unbroken donkey's colt into the city. Um, 
In this, Jesus does something else new. What, what he does, we, we've really, as if, if you're trying to listen to the gospel of Mark with fresh ears, fresh eyes, you'll see that you almost become accustomed to Jesus. Mark's very heavy on this. Um, and the other gospels point out too, someone gets healed and Jesus says, but, but quiet about it. Some, something magnificent happens or is about to happen and Jesus is like, let me take you aside and heal your eyes and your ears. Oh, quiet, don't tell anybody. And you're like, what is the deal? Well, people didn't understand who Messiah was going to be. They, they had their own vision of who Messiah was going to be and he was going to be a very different Messiah than they expected. So that's what he's done and we've become accustomed to this quiet, quiet, keep, it, keep, it on, keep a low profile on this whole Messiah thing. <laughs> this this person that had been prophesied for thousands of years is here. And now Jesus actually does the opposite. He, he, in contrast, clearly and purposefully demonstrates, this is exactly who I am. This is exactly who I am. How do we know that? Because he makes an unmistakable, unmistakable visual of a messianic prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, written many, many hundreds of years before the Lord even did this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. So yet, where these first century Jewish Jerusalem Passover pilgrim, wow, say that five times fast, first century Jewish Jerusalem Passover pilgrims undoubtedly desired that Jesus would be a Messiah that would fulfill their vision, their nationalistic vision, uh, their militaristic vision, rescue us from Rome, Establish Israel once and for all. That kingdom that will never end. It, it, it's got to be established here in an earthly Jerusalem. That's what Messiah apparently came to do. He again presents as a very different Messiah if they had the eyes to see it. Remember how he talked about the bookends of that section note on discipleship? Blind man healed. Blind man healed. But none of them at this time do. Um, he does not come on a war horse. He does not have a train of prisoners. There, there is that image in scripture, but it's very, different. It's, it's very different than what the people imagined it. Instead, he comes on a donkey. Um, this, this unbroken, it was unbroken because in, the, in, in that time and culture, if it's not used for, if an animal's not used for common purposes, then it, it's, it's, it's made, um, it, it can be right to use it for sacred purposes. He comes in on this unbroken donkey as a humble, gentle, peaceable king. Um, Donald English writes that as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he brings a kingship of hidden majesty, of humble power to save. And it's the opposite of, a militant, of being militant. He, he has the, it's the opposite image. They want Messiah that will bring bloodshed. They'll get it, but not as they imagined it. It will be his own blood that's shed. Um, and sometimes, you know, we have that vision of the, the militant God. 
And, and what's interesting in Zechariah, I've just read to you Zechariah 9, Zechariah 10 prophesies that it will be the opposite of militant. It says, I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses of Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river, that is the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Jesus will refuse to uh, conform to their political agenda. And he still does. He still does. You know, and again, I, 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 this, always, this often becomes an interesting hot button for some people. Hey, be glad you're an American. Be glad you're an American. God has given you the privilege to be born here. You didn't choose it. <laughs> uh, be glad to be American. Be patriot, whatever, fine. But do not put your political agenda on Jesus. He's way bigger than that. Um, I'm going to read a, uh, a couple times a quote David Garland. He's one of my favorite authors as I've read through, uh, studied Mark. He says, We must be saved from our petty nationalism that divides the world into tiny enclaves set over against one another. Jesus does not come to fulfill anyone's political agenda. As our judge, he may condemn it as he did the temple in Jerusalem. Amazingly, people still drape Jesus in nationalistic flags and assume that he not only endorses their political slogans, but will work to accomplish them. The one who comes to Jerusalem comes as the king of the entire world and dies for all people. His people will not be confined to any one nation, and his sacrificial love will reach beyond all national borders and races." Verses 10 through 18. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread their branches and had cut, uh, they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed him shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Stop there. Um, in sporting events, in sporting events, uh, especially, say, think about like big stadium sporting events, and it even can be true of high school all the way down to uh, smaller levels. A crowd cheers the entrance of the home team, right? The home team comes in, yeah, and we cheer the entrance of the home team as if victory is assured. When I, I uh, I played football, again, can't you tell? I played football in high school, and we, we used to uh, barge in with all our adrenaline to the uh, timeless classic, Welcome to the Jungle. <laughs> Guns and Roses, right? Where's Sean? You got, is he? Welcome to the jungle, right? So, and, and you so the 80s, man, the 80s, right? So this crowd that is, is with Jesus, it's a collection of his followers. It's a collection of um, those who are coming, these droves of people that are coming to the Passover feast, this week-long feast. Every Jewish male was, was uh, required to come to these feasts during the year. And 
This, these reactions of praise, of spreading cloaks and branches, as it, it, it's a sort of, it's kind of laying out the red carpet for Jesus. Oh, I'm going to take my coat off. And you think many of these people didn't have many possessions. I'm going to take my coat off. I'm going to lay it on the Lord for him to trample over with his donkey and lay these branches. They're laying out the red carpet. It's this picture of giving honor to this victorious king entering the city. They, they, they speak words directed at Jesus in accordance with what these pilgrims would do as they come to Jerusalem for the Passover. It, it, they, were, they were pieces of what they call the Hallel, which means praise, this section of the Psalms. In part it reads, um, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand join in the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. Which they're going up to the temple is the image. And now this passage just comes to life. As, as, they, as they turn these words toward Jesus... They receive him as a king who would be received this way during a coronation or during a, a military triumph and coming in and taking a city. Jesus is now the one who comes in the name of the Lord. These are things that they would have been singing. And now they're saying, you're the one that comes in the name of the Lord. You're the one that's going to establish, remember, um, Bartimaeus. Son of David, have mercy on me, right? He's calling out to this Messiah who would be in the line of David. You're the one who's going to establish the kingdom of David. You're going to sit on his throne, a kingdom that will never end. So, so Jesus, in a sense, becomes the ultimate representative of the home team. And they're assuming that they can claim victory. Victory is assured. They, they shout out, Hosanna, which in essence, it was a, it was a way of praise, praising. <sighs> Sean, yes. I just mentioned Guns N' Roses, Welcome to the Jungle, and you weren't even in the room. I was, a little, I was doing, that for, doing that for you. So Hosanna was an expression of pay, praise, but it means, it means save us, save us now. It's, it's, a, it's a call out, it's, it's, it's this combination praise and a call to be rescued. And there's something profoundly right about what they do. Profoundly right. Jesus is worthy to be received this way. In fact, when you, if you come to Jesus and say, I need Jesus to rescue me, this is in part how you need to receive him. Jesus, I need you as my Savior. But then Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You are Lord, you are King of my life. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's right as individuals during the week. It's right as we corporately get together to worship him. Because he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of singing praises to. He is Savior and victory is assured. Amen? But there's also something profoundly wrong here. Donald English writes, those presents did and shouted all the right things. But there is no indication that they grasped the real significance of what was happening. I think, wow, how often is that true of our worship? 
How often is that true of our worship on Sundays, of our worship during the week, of the worship of our lives? That that we say and do all the right things, but we really have no clue, no perception of what God is actually doing. It's easy to receive Jesus on the basis of what he'll do for us, rather than maybe what he would expect of us. It's easy to receive Jesus for who we want him to be, rather than who he actually is. So when we worship Jesus, which again means to bow our lives down and surrender and call Him Lord, are we saying that He's only Lord if He fits my agenda? Or He's Lord over my agenda? Lord, do we say you're only Lord if, if you do what I will? Or is He Lord over our will? You're only Lord if I can continue to do whatever I want to do, because that's clearly reality, my, my wants, my desire, my psychological makeup. That's, you know, clearly that's reality, that's what's good. So you're Lord as long as I can continue to do what I want to do. Continue in my will and my way, or he, is he Lord over my way unto his way, knowing that his way is best. Is he Lord only if the path is easy? And the, the, the victory is assured here and now. Or is he Lord even when the path is difficult and victory leads through the cross? Because that's where Mark is bringing us. There will be victory, but victory leads through the cross. Again, David Garland, he says, we must also be saved from our mercurial, which means active, lively, excitable faith that abandons Jesus at the first sign of trouble. Jesus does not welcome cheers from throngs who will not pray with him in dark Gethsemane or go with him to an even darker Golgotha. He can little use those Christians who show up once a year when the cheering starts around Easter. He needs those who will endure to the end even when faced with unspeakable suffering. We must be saved from foolish expectations of glory so that we can see God's power truly affected on the cross. God does not win by sending armies into bloody battles, but by sending His Son to the cross. As a king who gives his life for others, Jesus reigns with a kind of power that earthly kings cannot match. This last verse here, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Seems, seems a little anticlimactic. This, this, it's interesting, I thought this, this God, the Son who who created time, moving in the confines of time. It's already late. It's late in the day. And it, it seems, like I said, serene, anticlimactic. It seems that the crowds have quieted and gone their own way. And now, now Jesus thoroughly, thoughtfully, seemingly quietly inspects the temple. 
The next day, and we'll get into this next week, we, we, we see that he's going to come as the refiner's fire that's prophesied in Malachi. But this evening, it's, Mark tells us he simply went in and looked around at everything. Everything that temple stood for pointed to that lonely figure wandering around the temple that night. And it's impossible to get in the Lord's head. I just wonder, everything he saw, this is Jesus, this is Jesus, this is Jesus. The great deliverance of, of, for Israel that celebrated during the Passover was just a signpost of the one that is wandering around the temple courts that evening, inspecting, looking at all the signs and symbols. All the lambs that had been slain through the ages up to that point were merely symbols of the final lamb who would lay down his life to take away the sins of the world, standing quietly in that temple that evening. The home team is celebrated as they enter the stadium. They're cheered on as if victory is assured. And just like that, Jesus was cheered on as he entered Jerusalem. But the victory that these people hoped for really missed the mark. Because Jesus will appear to lose before anyone realizes he actually won. And, and I thought, just, you know, the, there's fickle fans. <laughs> Go down to Philly, right? They'll cheer the Eagles in. And then in the third quarter, when they make a few mistakes and are losing, boo! You guys stink! You stink! Right? And Jesus is cheered when he comes into the city, but in a, uh, just a handful of days later, he's going to have a different chant, right? Crucify him. Crucify him. In less than a week, as David Garland again writes, we will see that Jesus comes as a king to be crowned with thorns, enthroned on a cross, and hailed as the chief of fools. But it's that temple offering that's walking around the temple that night. It's that Passover lamb that is inspecting and thoughtfully looking and examining that will bring the greatest deliverance of all. Victory over sin. Victory over death. Victory over judgment. Life from death. He will be the lamb that will one day be sung to in Revelation 5.9. This will be reality. This lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood, you what? Anybody know? Purchased men. Purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So will our worship and will the worship of our lives not only be a right celebration, but will it be with a right motivation? When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, I bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within 
through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it, when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I am weak and poor, all I have is yours, every single breath. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it, when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I welcome the worship team back up.